Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hey witches, before we dive into this episode about madness studies, we just wanted to give you a heads up that today we discuss mental illness, suicide, forced incarceration, and trauma more generally. Of course, as always, please do what's best for you and skip this episode if that feels right. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And because I'm the second person talking in this intro, it is my job to suggest a topic for the sorting chat. But Marcel, I have, I've got nothing. Do you have something you want to talk about? (laughs) Just because of the time at which we are recording this episode, um, Bob Saget has recently passed away. Oh yeah. And I was wondering if we could talk about Full House, because I am shocked by how many feelings I have about Bob Saget's death. I wouldn't have thought that. I was not especially a fan. You know what? I also wouldn't have thought that. Tell me about your feelings about Full House. Granted, I haven't, I have not watched an episode of Full House since it was like first, like broadcast television when I was a child. Yeah. So this is not a defense of the politics of the show. No. No, I assume that they're not good. Couldn't say for sure, but that's just my guess based on what other things I know about the 90s. But what I do feel pretty strongly about is that Full House really like normalized the idea of living in community. I can't really think of any other examples that I grew up with. And so even as I became an adult and did normative adult things like get married and have children, I've continued to live with roommates and like, you have a full house. Yeah. (laughs) Some of those roommates are like blood relations and some of them are chosen family. And, and I really think that full house like made that a net good in my brain. 
in this way that allowed me to like kind of ignore people who said that people in their 30s shouldn't have roommates and that they should grow up. And you were like, <laughs> uh, if it worked for the Tanners? Tanner family. <laughs> good enough for the Tanners, it's good enough for me. I don't have particularly strong memories of Full House. It was not a major part of my childhood. I have stronger and more fond memories of uh, America's Funniest Home Videos, which I believe he also hosted. He did. Yes, that's true. (laughs) But what I find the most fascinating about him as a figure is that he was this like daytime TV or like family TV staple who had the filthiest stand-up act mm-hmm. like just so blue and i just i like people who code switch and i like that there was this period of entertainment where we didn't expect this kind of like parasocial relationship with celebrities such that we wanted them to be quote-unquote authentic such that we wanted them to have one personality that they performed constantly in everything that they did Which kind of is how celebrity works these days, right? That we like want our celebrities to be exactly the same everywhere because we want to imagine that we know them. And it's like, I love the idea that it's just like, no, I'm a dad on TV. And then when I do my stand up for adults, I do swears. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like in addition to the celebrity, we also want the character to like exist outside of the world of the character. And for example, when I saw Aaron Paul get an award, I think it was a Golden Globe uh, for his character, Jesse Pinkman, I was really, I was really surprised that he didn't accept the award by being like, yeah, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Awards, bitch. (laughs) He was like a person with like, Uh, Other things to say. It was wild. So anyway, so Full House. So Full House. Danny Tanner. Bob Saget. Classic Marcel. Always trying to make this podcast into a Stan account for white men. Oh, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever happened to predictability? Oh, my God. I'm the not all men like representative on this podcast. I'm so sorry. I love it. I love it. All right, let's let's revise. This is our last episode on Order of the Phoenix before our wrap up, which means a whole lot of cramming. So let's get into it in revision. Okay, so There's a couple of really big threads that we need to pull in today to talk about mad studies or madness studies as a field. So the first really big one is disability studies, because that's basically the Mm -hmm. field that mad studies emerged out of. So we've had two episodes on disability studies so far. Jess Battis gave us an intro to the field way back in book two, episode four, when they linked. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. Right. Ages ago. It was 20, yeah. 2020, if you will believe. A long, long time ago, I can still remember how that music used to make me smile. They linked the rise of disability studies as a discipline to activist organizing in the 1990s. 
And they introduced us to a really key concept, which is the social versus medical model of disability. So as a reminder, the medical model locates disability as a problem in individual bodies that ideally needs to be cured, um, quote unquote, while the social model understands ableism and the barriers it creates for disabled people as far more detrimental than the actual impairment. And then in book three, episode four, we had Taya Gerbeza join us to help us think about how the social model of disability is being enacted in the wizarding world through the refusal of various accommodations, like wolf Spain for werewolves seems like it would be a pretty useful thing to have available, and yet... Wild. Or even support for neurodivergent students like Neville. Nope, just a series of unmemorizable passwords. That's what you get, Neville. Oh my god. <laughs> Sleep in the so hall. Mad. God, it's so mean. We also talked in that episode and the subsequent one on lycanthropy as a metaphor about how werewolves have long been used as a metaphor for disability or disease, such as HIV and AIDS, thus attributing to the disabled or sick body a kind of dangerous monstrosity that is always at risk of infecting or killing, quote unquote, innocent people. I've cheated and snuck a peek at our guest's notes, so I know that we also need to tie our thinking about madness together with critical race studies and the prison industrial complex. So as a reminder, in book three, episode six, we talked with poet and activist Mercedes Eng about the carceral mm -hmm. logics of the wizarding world and how they reflect our own concepts of monstrosity and of innocence. That is of like who, quote unquote, needs to be institutionalized to keep society, quote unquote, safe. Every, there's so many scare quotes in all of these things. I'm going to get a finger cramp from all my scare quotes. And of course, our understanding of racism as structural, which we explored further in book four, episode three, with guest K. Alex. So many guest episodes. Great. I love it. That episode reminded us that we have to pay attention to structures like the prison system, like schools, and like, as we'll encounter in this episode, St. Mungo's, to understand how racism actually operates at a social level. There are so many other connections that we could make here. We haven't even gotten into trauma and PTSD yet, but I am champing at the bit to meet our guest. So can we just... Can we just go do that now? Yeah, let's do that. Today, we're going to be learning more about the field of MAD studies. And to talk it through, we have a very special guest joining us. This is Aisha Wilkes, pronouns she, her, a PhD student in the Department of English and Cultural Studies at McMaster University. She got Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone as a gift in 1997, and although she fell out of love with the series with the release of Order of the Phoenix in 2003, she's remained on fandom's periphery ever since. With the support of a Canada Graduate Scholarship, Aisha is working at the intersection of Black Studies and Critical Disability Mad studies to explore madness, i.e. mental illness, as a response to recapitulation of and refuge from the carceral colonial state in Black transatlantic literature. In a previous life, Aisha worked in the nonprofit sector, 
along with connections in Nicaranto, colonially known as Toronto, and Jamaica, this experience continues to shape her writing and teaching. Welcome, Aisha. Thank you for being here. It's really lovely to meet you, not in real life, uh, face-to-face, because I mostly know you as Twitter. Yeah, that's really true. I've been listening to Witch Please for a while, so it's very exciting to actually be here. Aisha, before we actually get into the, like, content of this segment, can you tell us a little more about why you fell out of love with the series in The Order of the Phoenix? Yeah, it feels very ironic that this is the book I'm here to talk about. It's perfect. It's perfect. I read Order of the Phoenix when I was like 12, and I couldn't take the angst. Like, I was not in the mood for (laughs) angsty boys at that stage in my life. So as soon as I opened it and I saw that Harry was lying in flower beds moping about, I was like, I'm done. (laughs) I do not have time. I do not have time for sad emo boys lying in a flower bed. And he had good reason to be sad. It wasn't even that. I just, I guess I had enough of it in life. So I finished the series and I really, I pat myself on the back for having done that. But that was the beginning of the end of The Love Affair. And I don't think Harry Potter fandom helps. Oh, tell us more. It's not even that I don't like the fandom. It's just that one of the things that kept me in fandom, or at least on its periphery, was that they kept drawing attention to all the problems in the book. Like, even the very basic ones, like, mathematically, how does the wizarding world persist? Mm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And other questions. So you liked the fandom because it was critical, but you said it also doesn't help. What do you mean by the fandom doesn't help? I think it doesn't help me to, you know, restore my love of the books, precisely because it's so critical. But it does, you know, allow me to sustain kind of a community around them. And that's sort of nice. (laughs) Sort of nice. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a full-throated support of the fandom, but like, you know what? In 2022, we are taking sort of nice. Listen, I don't think anyone can throw full sort throated support behind this fandom if they've ever read about the Snape wives. I think. I'm sorry, what? I think that's a topic for another episode. It is a topic for another episode, but I was very recently introduced to the Snape wives and it is. We'll do a bonus. We'll do a bonus episode. We'll do a bonus Patreon interview. Great. About the Snape wives. It sounds awful. Whenever I hear wives plural, I'm always like, "Mm, can't be good. Mm, Unless you are talking about two lesbians who are married to each other. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Touche. I'll give you that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, if I may poop the party, I was wondering, Aisha, could you tell us a little bit about what critical disability studies is and how MAD studies comes out of it? Yeah, I feel like Jess Battis covered this really well. Um, So I'm going to do a pretty abridged version. But critical disability studies is really interested in the embodied experience of disability uh, in the ways that disabled people encounter the world. And it emerges out of disabled activism. Uh, Historically, in disability studies, there's been less attention to the experience of racialized people. And disability studies has not always engaged as fully as we might wish in the experience of disabled people in the global south. 
There's also a lot of conversation in disability studies around the medical model and the social model. Um, but Alison Kafer offers another model, uh, a political relational model of disability that acknowledges some of the limitations of both the social and the medical model. Because the social model obviously is super empowering and very important intervention in disability studies. But it often doesn't account fully for um, experiences of distress and suffering associated, for example, with chronic pain. Because if you're focusing purely on society as the barrier rather than one's own body, it doesn't really give enough room for people whose bodies are, in fact, the source of their pain or whose disability is the source of their pain, right? Um, and it can be really difficult to say pain is a positive thing, um, particularly... <laughs> When enduring it, right? So I, that is that is such a, I mean, two really important interventions there, right? Which is both thinking about the experience of suffering and thinking about how, like, what are other models that could incorporate actual serious thinking about suffering? Because there is sometimes in the social model... I think particularly as the social model gets embraced by a particular kind of like white liberal positive thinking perspective of like the only thing standing in your way is right like a kind of inspiration porn attitude towards disability that strips out the physical experience and as you point out, like the intellectual, cognitive and emotional experience as well. Yeah, and I think that's where Mad Studies comes in to a certain extent. Uh, some people describe Mad Studies as applying the social model to mental illness or to experiences of madness. And I think that uh, Mad Studies does that in some cases, but I think that Mad Studies is also asking us to take seriously experiences of distress or suffering that attach to mental illnesses or to some mental illnesses. And so Mad Studies emerges from the consumer uh, survivor ex-patient movement. And when I refer to survivor in this context, I'm referring to survivors of psychiatric institutions. And so, yeah, so this has kind of emerged over the last 30 to 40 years. But the term itself, that is MAD Studies, was coined in 2008 by Richard A. Ingram. And he describes coining the term as uh, playing a game of pass the parcel. <laughs> Wait, what does that mean? <laughs> um, he says that you know, it feels as if anyone could have coined the term at that moment. And he just happened mm. to be holding the parcel when the music stopped. Uh, okay. um, yeah. So um, yeah. he uh, he officially is credited with coining the term, um, but describes sort of the community that was emerging around uh, this field of study. And Mad Studies is often described as emergent, but Ingram also points out that we can trace some of its antecedents even beyond critical disability studies to look at the work of, for example, Friedrich Nietzsche. And though he doesn't mention Frantz Fanon, uh, certainly uh, Frantz Fanon is doing some of the work in Black Madness in particular that I think is really productive to my own thinking. We have definitely not done a Fanon episode yet. So could you maybe give our listeners like a nutshell, like Fanon, what's Fanon, what was his deal? Uh, Franz Fanon is an anti-colonial or decolonial scholar. Um, he is Afro-Caribbean and he's writing in the 
I want to say 1960s-ish. And just thinking a little bit about the position of uh, Black people within the colonial context and trying to think against it. Uh, So he trained as a psychologist. And so he's thinking through and revising uh, Freudian psychoanalytic theory and applying it to experiences of race and racialization and the various dynamics and intimacies that take place there as Black people in particular are struggling against colonial regimes and forming independence movements and in many cases achieving their independence but still working towards liberation and to true decolonization. Mm. (laughs) Just going to take a moment for how incredible that short description of Phenomen was. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, small round of applause. An incredible, an incredible summary of Fanon. So going back to why people sort of can trace mad studies back to his work, what in particular is the sort of thread people are pulling out of his work? So to be honest, not a lot of people have actually done this, uh, formally speaking. Oh, it's you! I can't even take credit for it because it was actually a member of my committee, uh, Dr. Emil Joseph, who mentioned it to me in a committee meeting, blew my mind, and then immediately made me uh, start thinking about how I was going to actually do the work of bringing Fanon more fully into my research, because he's already on my reading list for the next stage of the PhD process. Um, uh, But now I'm thinking about his work in a new way, thanks to the intervention of Dr. Joseph. I know that that's not what we're here to talk about right now, but like, that's what a committee is supposed to do. (laughs) It is supposed to like... (laughs) set those synapses firing and get you thinking about other connections that are like pertinent to your work and not to just make you feel bad about where you're at in the process. (laughs) (laughs) Aisha, can you tell us a little bit more about the relationship of MAD studies to, say, psychology? MAD studies and psychology have a complicated relationship. Let's put it that way. Like, if this were on Facebook, does anyone still use Facebook? It would be, it's complicated. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because mad studies is often really critical of psychology and is often, certainly doesn't depend on psychology, but the relationship is nonetheless one of co-constitution in a lot of ways, because for a lot of mad people, they access an understanding of their experience in part through psychology. Mm. So although mad studies doesn't depend on psychology to define an individual's experience or to define madness necessarily, psychological diagnoses can make your experience legible to others and often mediate people's access to care and to treatment for their conditions. Mm. So psychology is obviously informing mad studies, but doesn't form the limits of anyone's understanding either of their own lived experience or of what madness can be. Yeah. The book that I sort of always think about when I'm thinking about the relationship between mad studies and the like psychological psychiatric institution is um, Esme Weijun Wang's uh, The Collected Schizophrenias. She is writing from within the perspective of schizophrenia and very much doing that thing that you were describing, Aisha, as like claiming the right to be able to describe her own experience and to account for her own experience while also having to, as part of accounting for that experience, grapple with the way that she is literally being diagnosed and like how that diagnosis locates her within these institutions and gives her like access or denies her access to certain kinds of care. 
like diagnosis has to be a big part of that story, even if it's not how she's defining her own experience. Definitely for a lot of people, diagnosis plays a huge part. Um, One thing that uh, Dr. Sammy Schock talks about in her book, Body Minds Reimagined, is about the ways that diagnoses are not equally accessible to all people. And in many ways, diagnoses are less desirable for particular constituencies because of the ways that a diagnosis can negatively impact an individual's ability to, for instance, uh, access employment or because of cultural stigmas around particular mental health conditions and so forth. Mm. So I think that diagnoses for a lot of people do inform the ways that they respond, Mm -hmm. but also that psychology and psychiatry as fields so often have treated mad people as objects of study or have dehumanized mad people, that mad studies is demanding that mad folks are able to, as you say, account for their own experiences and for themselves and to understand their relationship, not only to psychology or psychiatry as a discipline and a practice, but also to the world around them and to their own body minds. Aisha, I have a I have a question for you. We've seen in previous episodes the ways in which structural racism is like deeply embedded into these like scientific models, medical models, etc. Does madness studies as a field provide a kind of an alternative approach to tackling these issues without necessarily reproducing the kinds of uh, marginalization that we see in the quote-unquote real world? I definitely think it can. At its best, I think it does. Mm -hmm. Mad studies, like most academic disciplines, continues to be particularly white and particularly middle class. And so I'm working in in the, I guess, very emerging field of Black mad studies, where there are very few works that specifically describe themselves or frame themselves through that lens, including the work of Tariq Pickens, as well as Lamar Jarrell Bruce. And so when mad studies is thinking about the history of madness and the ways that it's been constructed, I think that it does offer really crucial interventions. Um, So, for example, Bruce and Pickens both talk about the ways that madness has been constructed vis-a-vis 18th century Enlightenment rationality, for example. And Jonathan Metzl has also talked about in his book, The Protest Psychosis, the experience of Black men who are disproportionately diagnosed with schizophrenia relative to other racialized groups and the ways that schizophrenia has, as a result, become a racialized condition with not only heavy stigma attached to it, but also with a history of having been applied to people protesting for their own rights and for their freedoms. And that, again, has a really long history because in the United States, drapetomania was described as the reason that some Black people fled slavery. So the actual desire to escape slavery was framed as a a consequence of mental illness. This is This is wild. Yeah. And a perfect historical example of exactly what you were saying, of that sort of use of diagnosis as a form of structural racism, as a way of sort of stigmatizing not only a particular population or community, but also like political perspectives. I mean, I guess we see this all over the place. Like this is hysteria. So, you know, we've been talking about mad studies and we've we've done that linking to to disability studies and we've talked a little bit about its connection to psychology as a institution a practice a discipline 
How do you, in your work, define madness? Madness is one of those things that I think mad studies in general, you will find as many definitions for madness as you do mad scholars, certainly, and probably also mad people. Um, and I'm particularly indebted to Lamar Jarrell Bruce's book, How to Go Mad Without Losing Your Mind. Mm, great title. I know, right? He gives four definitions of madness, and I have been working with them a little bit. So he thinks about madness in terms of lived experience of an unruly mind, a psychiatric category, rage or intense anger, particularly in the context of Black life, uh, where the anger of Black people is always seen as excessive and irrational. And then last but not least, he thinks about it as a drastic deviation from the psychosocial norm. So in my own work, I've taken up some of those definitions and those understandings, because I do think that they're incredibly relevant to the study of madness and also particularly to Black mad studies. But I'm also thinking a lot about the ways that madness exceeds our capacity to define it, just because of what it means to be mad, uh, and the ways that language might not actually allow us to fully account for experiences of madness. In your work, do you ever find that you have to like justify an analysis uh, of something, a character, a, a story, a perspective, something as mad when it has previously not been treated as such? So far, I've looked at texts that are open to a mad reading. Um, so, for example, Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye or Sitsig Daunaramga's Nervous Conditions both include characters uh, who are quite explicitly framed in terms of their madness. And I'm also looking at, for instance, David Cheriandi's brother. And in that text, Cheriandi is very specifically thinking about the social construction of madness, particularly the posthumous con uh, social construction of madness. And so... It's really easy for me to apply a Mad Studies reading to those texts, and I don't think I'm likely to be challenged on that. <laughs> on the other hand, I think as I was kind of reading through Order of the Phoenix and more generally thinking about the Harry Potter series... I was thinking about the ways I might be called to justify particular readings of the characters as mad, because I've taken a pretty expansive view. Since I'm interested in any time the characters are sort of penalized for their deviations from psychosocial norms, even if those are what we might describe as reasonable deviations. So I'm thinking, for instance, of Cho Chang in this book in particular. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you... In your own work, you're sticking largely with texts that you probably won't get challenged using this methodology. But in this episode, we are wildin'. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. That is what Witch Please is for. So let's get to it. Let's do it. Just in case you are wondering, standardized testing is an oppressive institutional technology that both generates and reinforces the idea that there is a single, testable form of intelligence. But you know who doesn't care about standardized tests? Owls. And also us. <laughs> hey, Hannah, that was a tortured 
a tortured segment intro. So, Aisha, I went on the internet and was like, here are the things that I would like to talk about. Can somebody come talk to us about Mad Studies? I was like, listen, we've got a character in this book, Luna, who is described as Looney, and we've got a visit to St. Mungo's where we encounter forced institutionalization of people for mental illness for the first time. Like, where we encounter the fact that that is a thing in the wizarding world. And I was like, cool, here are some really clear examples of where we need to talk about madness. And you were like, yeah, okay, I'll talk about those things. But actually, I think there's even more going on in this series. And so I am really excited for you to just be like, listen, (laughs) all the way through these books... There is there is so much we want to talk about. So do you want to maybe start high level? Like, how does JKR think about madness in these books? Yeah, I can try. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not entirely convinced that she knows how she's thinking about madness in these books. That's fine. We can't we can't uh limit our readings to what JK understands about her own series, because that is very, very finite. (laughs) I think that one of the things that J.K. Rowling is doing here is that she has the good mad characters, and they generally go mad because of a violent trauma that took place at some point in their lives. So Luna, for example, has her mother die in front of her when she's nine. We have uh, the Longbottoms tortured into madness by Bellatrix Lestrange. We have Ariana Dumbledore tortured by muggle boys when she's six years old and so on and so forth. So these are all kind of good characters who go mad. And again, I think that this goes back to what I was saying a little bit earlier about the ways that madness is constructed in contrast with Enlightenment rationality, because where for characters of color, we might not require this kind of violent history to explain their madness, white characters only go mad as a consequence of some inciting event. And the evil characters who go mad, characters like Voldemort and arguably like Bellatrix Lestrange, also tend to have violent trauma in their past, that is Voldemort's um, I'm like, Voldemort's mother, period. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot there. But suffice it to say that it's often attributed uh, not only to their violent trauma, but also to some moral failure. So, for example, with Merope Gaunt, her failure was to choose life in the face of misery. And she's explicitly described as lacking the inner strength that defined Lily Potter as a mother and as sort of the Madonna figure for this series. Can't wait for a future episode where we talk about mothers. I'm looking forward to it. There's a lot to say. (laughs) We will absolutely have an episode about mothers, my God. So we've got can you give us some examples? Like who's our who are good mad people, who are our bad mad people? So I think Luna is obviously our best mad person. Cho is one of our better mad people, although the series doesn't treat her particularly well. Alice and Frank Longbottom are our good mad people par excellence. And then we have, again, arguably Sybil Trelawney as one of our better mad people. Again, not treated ideally by this series either. 
because the series doesn't love women. But certainly that's in stark contrast to someone like Bellatrix Lestrange, Voldemort, obviously. Let's think who else is mad. I mean, a lot of the Death Eaters are, when they come out of Azkaban, they are represented as having, if they weren't mad going in, they were like, everyone is driven mad by the experience of being in Azkaban is kind of the framing. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Sirius Black is another good mad person, although I've always found that relationship really disturbing because Sirius is so obviously trying to recapture his relationship with James and it makes him a very bad godfather who consistently endangers Harry and emotionally manipulates and blackmails him. So that's not super. No, he's not a good safe adult. I mean, I think we can account for it. Like, I think sort of... Sirius got frozen in this moment of like really intense trauma and comes out and meets this kid who looks just like his dead best friend and is like, cool, you're my best friend again. And we are both 16. And that is like not a healthy relationship for Harry to be drawing on or involved in, particularly not without like any other adults helping him to navigate it. I need to backtrack because Aisha, you mentioned that Cho can be read as mad in this text. And so can you talk us through that? Because I don't think she would typically make it on the list if we were thinking about our like, oh, who are the people who are uh, experiencing mental illness? Yeah, I think that Cho is one of my more controversial choices here. Um, (laughs) That's the one I felt I'd have to defend in particular, of course. Uh, And it's just because Cho is grieving. And I think that she's Her grief is really normal in every conceivable way. Um, But one of the reasons that I read Cho through the lens of madness is because after she and Harry have their first disastrous date, during which he mentions (laughs) that he wants to go meet with Hermione, he and Hermione debrief and Ron interrupts part way as Hermione is explaining the reason for Cho's supposed overreaction. And Ron says, Hermione, you should write a book translating all the thing, all the mad things that girls say. And I know that it's very common to frame women in terms of irrationality and madness, as our earlier reference to hysteria sort of reinforces. But I think that the narrative actually supports a reading of Cho as hysterical, even in the face mm-hmm. of immense and very recent trauma. So although I think that it's perfectly acceptable for us to read Cho as a, a, a regular, degular, grieving girl. I think that one of the ways that we can think of her as mad is thinking about the way that her society receives her response. And mm. whether because she's surrounded by immature boys in particular, but immature people, I think that one of the issues that comes up with a Cho is that People are not willing to accept and to make space for the grief that she's feeling. And they don't actually have caring models to respond to that grief. And so as she's trying to navigate the loss of her boyfriend, she is constantly being portrayed as over the top or excessive. And she's trying to move into a new romantic relationship with Harry, probably prematurely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, oops. <laughs> Listen, we've all been there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I also feel like in part what's happening in this book, sort of in terms of the romance subplot, is that Cho is getting gradually superseded by Ginny. Um, 
right? So she's sort of sort of beginning to be introduced as a potential other romantic lead who, you know, is is increasingly part of the group. And Ginny, as opposed to Cho, is characterized by her stoicism. So, like, Cho is the overly emotional, hysterical, like, cries in ways that confuse and frighten Harry. Whereas Ginny is, like, you know, has to be... She has to remind Harry of the fact that she went through this, like, nightmarish trauma situation in the Chamber of Secrets because he has forgotten and sort of implicitly he has forgotten because she doesn't act like it, right? She's not bringing it up. She's not openly traumatized. She's not openly grieving. She doesn't cry. She doesn't, like, she doesn't do any of those things. And there is, I feel kind of implicitly, a sense that, like, Cho is getting set apart, set aside as a potential romantic partner because of her hysteria. And Ginny is becoming increasingly appealing as a romantic partner because... She's so stoic and like self-managed. Yeah. <laughs> that's definitely <laughs> cool. It's that's definitely there. And I think uh someone I once saw someone make the point that both uh Harry and Ginny have uh people of color as their starter partners before they move on to their to the to the to each other. Um, and make the types of families that uh, are sort of perceived as the ideal normative uh, heterosexual family. And I think that there's also a significant element of the ways that Ginny and Cho are constructed uh, in this book in particular uh, that also point to the reasons that uh, Ginny is supposedly a better or more appealing partner. And I think that you've laid it out really beautifully, Hannah, in saying that Ginny is stoic. And so despite having been too embarrassed to speak to Harry for like three years after the incidents in the chamber, now that she has come into her own and she has apparently overcome the trauma that took place there, trauma that she does not in fact remember, She's being contrasted positively against Cho, who is overly emotional as she tries to date the man who was supposed to be killed in place of her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, geez, get it together, Cho. That is the messaging. It's like, woo! It really is. Woo. It really is. And like, yeah, the book is being narrated by a teenage boy. Absolutely. But it doesn't appear that anybody anywhere in the wizarding world has any frame of reference for like addressing trauma. I mean, we did a whole episode about this. It's really something. Okay. We've talked micro. Can we talk macro? <laughs> I want to talk about St. Mungo's. Yeah. I mean, speaking of having models of treating trauma, it seems like either if you can ignore it and still function, then we'll just ignore it. And if you are not able to still function into St. Mungo's you go. The little we see of St. Mungo's is perhaps better than the actual day-to-day experiences of psychiatric institutions in our own world in the sense that we don't see evidence of um, painful treatments like electroshock therapy. 
but we do see a lot of evidence of a dismissive attitude towards the people in the Janus Thicke ward, also known as Ward 49, where uh, Frank and Alice Longbottom, Gilderoy Lockhart, and others are kept. Um, because, for example, when a deaf wizard comes to see, I think, Broderick Bode on that ward, the welcome witch says, uh, I don't see what the point is. Uh, he still thinks he's a teapot. So I think that there's an assumption of neglect, right? This is organized abandonment in action because the wizards are sort of shunted off to this ward out of sight and out of mind. And there's no expectation that anyone would care about them or continue to engage with them meaningfully. I think that that's very typical of the ways that madness is treated, um, because it's seen often as an imposition on able-minded and able-bodied society when mad people cannot manage their own conditions. And so if we can shunt people off to therapy or put them on medication so that they're able to manage their conditions independently or with the assistance of a paid professional, then that scene is perfectly acceptable. And I think that's one of the reasons that we see a certain level of comfort, broadly speaking, with conditions like depression and anxiety. Because while they're often not sexy in real life... Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm just thinking about how sexy my depression is. You know, experiences vary. <laughs> I'm kidding. It manifests as not bathing. Keep going. You know, I think a lot of some people might describe them as less than sexy. But I think that because there's an, a fantasy or a belief that they can be managed, there is also a willingness to accept them, but to accept those conditions provided that the people with them continue to be productive members of society. I think very often when we see conditions with um, more outwardly disruptive symptoms, the level of acceptance immediately drops. And if depressed or anxious people are not able to manage their symptoms successfully, I think they likewise face a lot of the same stigma as somebody with a condition like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. And so I think about the discourse around figures like Azalea Banks or Kanye West, both of whom are very disruptive in their expressions of mental illness or simply in their in the ways that they exist in the world, whether or not it is a direct consequence of their mental illness. And so those folks are often punished and often treated as disposable, uh, which is not to excuse some of the behaviors that they've exhibited, some of which are quite harmful to various constituencies, but rather to think about the ways uh, that some individuals and some populations are seen as disposable or are seen as worthy primarily of confinement. And I think with the recent Britney Spears case, we see a similar dynamic playing out as well, where she was put into a conservatorship the moment that her behavior became disruptive rather than merely entertaining. Yeah. You know, there's there's conversations in disability studies about cure and the obsession with cure and like, what does it mean to be cured? And a lot of the time, what it means is that you can contribute to capitalism adequately. And like literally sort of in terms of how we define disability in terms of like accessing disability leave, right? It's like, can you work 40 hours a week? If you can, you're not disabled. If you can't, then you are. It's like literally recounting it in terms of how productive you are or are not for capitalism. And that gets, I think, 
continues to be really complicated when we are talking about mental health and about madness, like that, what does it mean to be cured or to be, you know, how do you get into St. Mungo's in the first place? And then how do you get out of St. Mungo's? And I think the way they talk about the long-term residents and why they need to be there and what getting better, quote unquote, looks like, I think St. Mungo's really illustrates this for us. Particularly in that moment, I pulled out this quote because it really stuck with me when the nurse is talking to them and is talking about like improvement and what that looks like. And then says, Mr. Bode, we've seen a real improvement in Mr. Bode. He seems to be regaining the power of speech very well, though he isn't speaking any language we recognize yet. And I was like, oh, isn't that a perfect nutshell of how we think about what madness is versus what sanity is, that you have to speak a language we recognize. And when you can speak a language we recognize, we will say that you are okay. So like he's speaking language. It's just you don't know what he's saying. So you gotta gotta keep him here until we understand him. Like it's a really powerful metaphor for the sort of normalization impulse of declaring some people mad and others not. Yeah, legibility is a huge part of it. Um, You know, are you legible to the people in power? Is your experience legible to them? Are your desires legible to them? Um, And do they fit within, you know, capitalist frameworks of productivity and so forth? Mm -hmm. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Marcel, you look like you're percolating a question. Yeah, you know how hard that is for me. (laughs) Yeah, I can see, I can hear the grinding. I want to talk about Lockhart and I want to talk about... Yes, you do. (laughs) I want to talk about the way in which he's represented and the way in which his madness is almost framed as like his just desserts. Yeah, I think the way that Lockhart is constructed in the scene is first off that he's a he's comic relief. Mm, mm-hmm. And he's used to interrupt some of the the tragic and difficult moments surrounding the interaction with the Longbottoms as a family unit. And so Lockhart becomes comic relief because he's one of our evil mad folks. His madness can also be traced back to a moment of trauma, you know, following their visit to the chamber when the memory charm backfired. But ultimately, madness here is a punishment for him for having not only performed memory charms on other people and stolen their work, but also having threatened Harry and Ron as 12-year-old children. Mm -hmm. And also for being gay. Well, yeah. Because the other thing about the mad characters in the book 
is that most of them are women, but if they're not, they're gender non-conforming men. Mm -hmm. So Gilderoy Lockhart is the most prominent example, perhaps, but Voldemort also gets constructed as mad following his return. So early on as Tom Riddle, Voldemort is actually a pattern card of masculinity in a lot of ways. You know, he's an attractive figure for all that he's evil. But as he becomes more dissipated over time, and as he goes to the, you know, to the Orient or whatever with Quirrell and finds different secret things to become immortal, it's harder and harder to recognize him as a man. Mm -hmm. And particularly as a man with desires. Uh, The revelation about a child with Bellatrix Lestrange is horrifying precisely because it's impossible to fit Voldemort as he's portrayed in the series within a cis-heteronormative framework because he is deliberately separated from that and removed from that in terms of the ways that he's portrayed, as well as his dependency on Wormtail and others very early in his kind of transfiguration, for lack of a better word, into, you know, the Dark Lord as we see him in kind of the final books of the series, where he perhaps hasn't fully regained his powers, but he is uh, more recognizably human. Hmm. So I think that that's one of the dynamics that we're seeing at play with Lockhart as a mad figure and as a man, he is seen as deficient. And so he was always already deficient on introduction. And so this madness is just further evidence of that deficiency and the fact that the only thing he's regained is the ability to sign autographs and to admire himself mm-hmm. and frankly to deceive the nurses and others or to exaggerate his own consequence is proof that Gilderoy Lockhart never contained enough substance for us to mourn the loss of his memory or his mind. So speaking of people that we mourn their losses, the other main patients that we encounter at St. Mungo's are the Longbottoms, who are treated quite differently from Lockhart, right? That they are figures of pathos rather than figures of comedy like Lockhart is. In part, we can treat Lockhart as comic because he, quote unquote, deserved what happened to him, whereas the Longbottoms are heroes. And so what happened to them is tragic, is the sort of framing. And I always find this encounter distinctly heartbreaking for a variety of reasons, including that when I was a teenager, my mother was dying of cancer and the particular way, like she had tumors in her brain and she was on a lot of steroids and she was on a lot of very, very strong painkillers. And so she became increasingly mad towards her death, including having very vivid hallucinations and really, really strong sort of mood swings. And so I really grappled with that sort of shame and embarrassment and also feeling of like not knowing how to talk to other people about this relationship that was really, really important to me. And she died by suicide, which I had a huge amount of shame around for a very long time and wasn't something I felt like I could talk about. And so this encounter of Neville with his parents has always really hit me very close to home, particularly that image of the candy wrapper Mm -hmm. that his grandmother tells him to throw out and that he keeps with him. So I want to talk a little bit about the Longbottoms and about like like how Neville has been taught to treat his parents, right? That his grandmother has taught him what kind of attitude to have towards his parents, which is you have to somehow have a relationship to the people you never knew and what they were like before this and idolize them for 
what they used to be like and the heroes that they were. And then I guess just pity the people they are now. Yeah, I think for me, as I read or reread this scene, I was really struck because his grandmother knew Frank and Alice before they were tortured and Neville never did. And so for her, she's in, she's stuck in a process of mourning where their value for her certainly comes from their sacrifice and from all that they did. But that's also the source of her love and affection for them. She knows and remembers the people that they used to be. And she has never been able to move beyond mourning for those people. So she can only view the people they've since become as a pale imitation or as, you know, uh, the folks left behind. And I think we see a similar attitude from Mad-Eye Moody, who says that it, it would have been better had they died rather than living as shells of their former selves, right? And so Neville and his grandmother occupy very different positions in relation to Frank and Alice Longbottom. Um, and his grandmother is constantly like asking him or demanding of him that he take pride in his parents for what they were. And she is very quick to give a brief summary of the things that they did, of the people that of the of what they accomplished, of why they were fighting um, in the first place. But Neville's moment of defiance comes when his mom hands him the candy wrapper because he's expecting his friends to laugh, having been taught that people would be ashamed or amused by the ways that his mom navigates the world and not expecting that his friends would actually uh, recognize in this moment the heartbreaking loss that his family suffered. At the same time, I think that the scene is also an example of the limitations of the models that Neville has received and the models that others have received because they aren't able to see anything positive or anything recuperative in the interaction between Neville and his mother. Because I think that Neville is recognizing Alice's action as an act of profound care. It's a gesture that demonstrates a love for him, an enduring understanding of the relationship that they share, even if she doesn't act in a normative way, even if she can't be the type of mother that she likely imagined being when she was pregnant. But he's also really cognizant that there is no way of incorporating his relationship with her into an understanding of families more generally. And so another person I might argue is mad in this scene is actually Neville's grandmother, because I think that she's experiencing, you know, a deep form of grief that has really trapped her at a particular stage in her relationship. And it has made her less effective in modeling for Neville new ways or different ways of relating to his parents. And Neville himself has had to learn how to navigate that relationship, but also has had to endure a constant comparison to his parents that we see once again play out in the scene. And what we hopefully might imagine about Neville is that part of the way that he comes into his own in the later books might be through actually reconciling himself to 
not only the way his parents are now, but also the ways that he deviates from the legacy that they left behind as an individual person, and that he's nonetheless able to offer um, meaningful care and support to his friends and to his relations. And I think that that comes through actually following Harry's Quibbler interview when Neville reaches out to Harry and says, hey, that was tough, eh? Like talking about uh, witnessing a death. And he's halting as he asks that question, but he also concludes that it's important for people to know. And there's an ellipsis following that statement. And so, like the literary scholar that I am... You're like, an ellipsis, an ellipsis. excuse me, textual gaps. <laughs> excuse me, yeah. That was, Let's talk. That was exactly my response, I'm sorry to say. But I really, I looked at the ellipsis and I was like, he's thinking of his parents. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think that Neville does recognize in that moment and uh, following the, given the fact that his friends reacted in a positive way, I think in that moment, Neville is recognizing the fact that it's important for people to know not only about what his parents did, but also about who they are and how they have impacted his life. That's a lot to read into an ellipsis. Mm. That's exactly the right amount to read into an ellipsis. That's how you do it. I mean, I legit just got verklempt thinking about, like, an older Neville with more autonomy being in a position where he can just, like, go and visit his parents. Like, maybe even bring his parents home at some point, like, once he's an adult and has his own home. And it's just like, I can take care of, like, I don't, some, I bet somebody's written some unbelievably touching fan fiction about this very premise. Uh, and I don't want to read it. Because I already cry enough. Thank you very much. But thinking about Neville as somebody who it definitely we read as neurodivergent and also somebody who has this sort of up close personal familial relationship to madness and institutionalization makes me think about the way that the sort of characters who really emerge into solidarity with Harry in this book, right? The new larger Dumbledore's army are Luna, Neville, and Ginny, mm -hmm. who are all characters who have had close personal experiences of both trauma and madness, right? That Ginny had this experience of being, like, possessed, of, like, losing parts of her memory, you know, not remembering, mm -hmm. like, what happened to Ginny is so wildly traumatic. And then we've got Luna, who is, like, our sort of resident mad character at Hogwarts. And it seems really significant to me that in this book where Harry is being publicly labeled as mad, as unreliable, and where he is so traumatized and so angry that like lots of readers hate him in this book because he is so unregulated and out of control. But these three new, like they're not new characters, Luna's a new character, but they are sort of newly part of the the friend group and newly part of this political action right they all they are the ones who go together to the ministry at the end mm -hmm. and like fight together that these three new additions to the group are all characterized by their proximity to madness in some ways and that they're the ones who don't turn on harry and believe him and trust him feels significant I read that both in a positive and a negative light because 
for me, one of the problems with this is that J.K. Rowling returns to the mad character to prop up the hero in some way or to prop up a prominent man. So Ariana Dumbledore plays a formative role in Dumbledore's life a little later in the series. So I'm jumping ahead here. But likewise, uh, Harry has several arguably mad characters who play prominent roles in his life, including but not limited to uh, Sybil Trelawney, Quirrell, Voldemort, Ginny, Cho, Luna, Sirius, Sever- uh, Severus Snape, and so on. Mad-Eye Moody? It's right there in his name. Mad-Eye Moody, my fave. And then Neville and the Longbottoms, but also Bellatrix Lestrange, Voldemort and Merope, as well as, or Merope, as well as Bellatrix. So a lot of the mad characters seem to exist in no small part for the purpose of narrative prosthesis, uh, which is a term from David Mitchell that describes the ways that disability and in this case madness are often used as a crutch, har har, in stories to <laughs> in order har, to bring, har indeed <laughs> to bring about particular uh, particular ends. And so I think that we see J.K. Rowling return to this again and again, and she returns to a particular aesthetic of madness. Um, so. Not only is it feminized, but also a lot of her mad women are described in very similar terms. Um, They're pale. They tend to have like bad hair. That's how you know. Yeah, I don't know what that's about. But also they tend to have very pronounced eyes. So their eyes are large or protuberant, as in the case of Luna. Um, Merope's eyes uh, point in different directions. In one way or another, uh, there is a very... A strong emphasis in the characters that she's deliberately writing as mad mm-hmm. at least there's a strong emphasis on sort of their pallor so i read that as an emphasis on their whiteness but also on sort of the vacancy or the largeness of their eyes which in some ways can read as a meditation on innocence but also a reflection of i think the idea that something is not quite there or something is missing. And so I think that Rowling really returns to particular particular visual lexicon of madness that is recognizable and familiar in a lot of ways. And I do, that's the Ophelia figure in my mind, right? Is like, she's white, she's innocent, her hair is unbound, which is, I think the the chaos of the hair is has a really long sort of history of being associated with the degree to which women are more or less managed, that well-managed women have tidy hair and mad women have untidy, uncontrolled hair. You know, she like she's Ophelia is like wandering around saying poems that nobody understands. <laughs> and like that, I think, is in a lot of ways a sort of Western urtext of madness, that it is white, feminized, innocent, nonviolent except towards oneself mm-hmm. and that those are a lot of the tropes that we see with the like the good mad characters in Harry Potter as well for sure. Yeah. And then they help Harry to figure out his own feelings. So Luna, you know, helps Harry to figure out grief. Neville helps Harry to, you know, feel comforted uh around the Quibbler interview and so on. So, and also helps Harry in other ways because obviously Neville plays that really important role with the prophecy. Um, and so we mm-hmm. have all mm-hmm. of these mad characters whose madness becomes an opportunity for Harry to grow or to yes. lean into another part of himself or his identity that he hasn't up to that point in the text. And so 
I think that it's important that they emerge as kind of a community of care for him. And at the same time, I'm really skeptical of the ways that the text leans on mad characters and neurodivergent characters without actually allowing them to fully embody their madness and their neurodivergence. Because as we'll see in later books, Luna ultimately isn't allowed to stay mad, at least not to the extent that she is when we meet her in book five, right? She has to have an encounter with reality. And we actually see the beginnings of that encounter the first time that we meet her when Hermione points out that suggests that the quibbler is a pile of garbage. And Luna seems to snap out of her dreamy state to chastise Hermione. And so I think that when Luna is forced to confront the ways that her father has deceived her much later in the series, um, we once again see Luna having to emerge from the dreaminess or the dottiness that has so long defined her character into a new understanding of the world around her. And that doesn't have to be a negative thing necessarily, but I think that it's really telling that the books require Luna not only to become a little bit more rational in order to be fully accepted, but also ultimately have her marrying and having children. And again, another example of very cis-heteronormative uh, management, because that's the way that mad women are allowed to exist and persist in the books if they're not going to die in the way that, for instance, Ariana Dumbledore does. Okay, to your point, Aisha, about the way that these characters are used to prop up Harry, I had this sudden revelation this entire novel, Order of the Phoenix, is, we've talked about previously, is about gaslighting Harry. It's about his his him trying to recover from the trauma of what happened in book four and the Daily Prophet and the Ministry of Magic working in tandem to gaslight him, to make him out as mad. And as you were pointing out, this other community of, of people who have also experienced madness are the people who come together to provide him with that community to show him that he is believed. And ultimately, the message is that he wasn't mad. Ultimately, the message is that he's perfectly sane and has been all the time. And so in this way, their their madness, their neurodivergence is used exclusively and explicitly to reinforce the sanity and believability of our cis, hetero, able-bodied, white, male hero. And it doubles down on the idea that, like, there is a singular, stable notion of reality and way of perceiving the world. And Harry is right. What Harry is saying is right and correct and true. He was never mad in the first place. The other stuff that gets printed in the Quibbler is mad and is wrong and is established as such, but Harry's is true and good. I, I hurt. <laughs> it is, Aisha, those, those, that double-handed reading that you just offered, I feel like, again, in a nutshell, characterizes so much of the way that we are navigating these books, that we see these glimpses of this opportunity for a community of care, these glimpses of something that says, you know, what if these mad characters come together in this liminal space that is the room of requirement that lets them all step into their expertise, step into their power, 
um, be in a community that doesn't judge them or immediately assume that they are less competent or less human. And that, you know, that is like this kind of latent possibility that we see. And then we return to the reality of the text and what it is actually doing with these characters and what it is actually doing is using them as props for the personal journey of a white man. Yeah, I guess this is when the not all men segment ends. <laughs> yes, all men, no tall men. Um, yeah, I think I think that is ultimately what happens with this book, because although I think there's a really strong case to be made that Harry is mad, like a mad figure in Order of the Phoenix, and in fact, for the duration of the series, I don't think that's actually the case that we're supposed to make or the understanding that we're supposed to come away with. I think Marcel's right that unfortunately at the end of the series, or at the end of this book at least, we're meant to understand Harry as having been in complete possession of his faculties from beginning to end. Right, right. And the mad characters are actually meant to emphasize that. There's a moment just as they leave the Hogwarts Express to go to the castle when Luna Lovegood says, don't worry, you're just as sane as I am. And that moment has a lot of currency for obvious reasons. And at the same time, I think that while Harry is not reassured, the reader is. Mm -hmm. Because we can see from the ways that Luna Lovegood is presented that Harry is absolutely saner than she is. Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to notsorryworks.com or, of course, wherever podcasts are found. If you want to hang out with us more, we're on Twitter and Instagram at ohwitchplease. Aisha, if the people want to hear more from you, where can they find you? They can find me on Twitter at mostarticulate. I promise I'm not conceited. It's a joke. <laughs> You are incredibly good at summarizing things. Yeah. Chef's kiss. Oh, my God. Which Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry and distributed by Acast. Special thanks to Not Sorry for having us and to our team player of a producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. Thanks, Coach. If you are into the podcast, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts? At the end of every episode, we'll shout out everyone who left us a five-star review. So you've got to review us if you want to hear me say it ain't so. Na 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 na. Sorry. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Mm. I got a headbang from Coach. <laughs> Thanks this week to Kodak. 2057, Ball of Wax, TLC, Little Hannah, Little Hannah, and I think it's probably FJ. Little Hannah D. I mean, I don't know. Could be <laughs> <laughs> Little Hannah D and FJ Melissa. And thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. By the time this episode comes out, we'll have already done our live Witch Please Tell Me, which I'm going to go ahead and assume was a blast. But if you're not a supporter yet, you can sign up now at any Patreon tier and get access to the recording of that event. 
which was definitely a blast. Plus the recording of our holiday special, which if you've listened to the audio and you haven't seen the accompanying video, mm, you are missing out. And so much more exciting content. So head to patreon.com slash witch please to check it out. We'll be back next episode for our wrap-up discussion of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. But until then, later witches! Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.